Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Hashtag Clocked In with me, your host, Jordan Edwards. I'm thrilled to have you tune in as we dive into the dynamic world of productivity, success, and stories of incredible individuals who've mastered the art of getting things done. Whether you're commuting, hitting the gym, or just relaxing at home, this podcast is the go-to source for inspiration and actionable tips to level up your productivity game. I'm on a mission to unravel the secrets of those who seem to effortlessly manage their time and achieve their goals. So if you're ready to clock in and unlock your full potential, you're in the right place. We've got a lineup of amazing guests, industry experts, and thought leaders who will share their insights and strategies to help us crush your to-do list and make the most out of every moment. Get ready to get inspired, motivated, and equipped with the tools you need to supercharge your productivity. This is Hashtag Clocked In with Jordan Edwards. Let's dive in. What's up? It's Clocked In with Jordan Edwards here. Hey, what's going on, everyone? We got a special guest here. Scott Dickers founded the world's first human website, The Onion, in 1996. A few years earlier, he helped found the original Onion newspaper. You might know The Onion newspaper as providing fictitious stories and being very entertaining. He served as The Onion's owner and editor-in-chief on and off for much of the last quarter century. His work with The Onion and its website and other related products earned Scott the number 43 spot on Time Magazine's list of top 50 cyber elite, alongside such icons such as Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and George Lucas. In addition to his work, Scott is an accomplished voice actor who's performed in many national commercials, video games, and animated cartoons, including Saturday Night Live's TV Funhouse. He's also written and directed several award-winning short films, two feature films, Spaceman and Bad Meat. So welcome, Scott. We're excited to have you here. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here, Jordan. Thank you. Yeah, Scott, really excited to have you on the Clocked In podcast. And the first thing I want to dive into is how did The Onion originate? How, where, did, and where did you got at that moment in time when you guys started it, what did you see the future as with it? Yeah, well, it started in Madison, Wisconsin in 1988. And it was, the idea was to do a college humor magazine, like the Harvard Lampoon or something like that. And the National Lampoon was kind of waning in quality and reputation around that time or had been for a long time. Had its heyday in the 70s. Mad Magazine was mostly just for kids. And so a couple of really smart guys came to me. I was a really successful cartoonist in Madison at that time. I had a really popular daily comic strip in the student newspaper that I self-syndicated around to other newspapers and sold t-shirts and everything. So my comic strip was like everywhere. And so these two guys came to me and and said, hey, we want to start a humor magazine. We want you involved. Um, Because I was like the big comedy fish in Madison, Wisconsin at that time. And so I was like, yeah, awesome. It sounds like a really fun idea. I really like those guys. They were really sharp and really funny and really charismatic and just seemed like the kind of guys you'd want to be in business with. And so we started and it, it, the effort quickly became very humble because I realized they had no money. 
I wasn't going to put any money into it. I was just like volunteering my time. But we went to a local printer to ask how much it would cost to print this publication. They wanted to do it every week. And the only way to, to afford to do that would be to do it on newsprint. Like you couldn't uh, print a glossy full color magazine for that. It would be way too expensive. None of us had that kind of money. So as soon as I realized it was going to be a newspaper, I, <laughs> I was less interested. Like it was just seemed so lame to do a humor newspaper. Nobody had ever heard of that before. But, you know, you work with what you got. And the plan was, well, we'll make it a newspaper parody. It'll be like a fake new grocery store tabloid sort of thing. We'll make fun of wacky headlines. And uh, that's what it was. So for years, for like five years, it was like, you know, big sensational headlines about Worm Boy, the boy who was raised by worms and took on worm characteristics and, you know, wacky stuff like that, making fun of tabloid news. And then we started doing more serious news parody. And we realized there was a deeper subtext in The Onion, which was, it was making fun of the idea of journalism. And like, why would you believe anything you read? Because at the end of the day, it's just people writing it down. And those people are just as flawed as any of us. So who's to say what's real and what's true? So the more we kind of got into that, the more interesting it got. And so over time, like those two, those two original guys, they bowed out in year two. So they were gone. And it was me. I was the head of all the creative. And then I had a business partner and we had like a production guy who did, you know, the layout. And nobody was making any money. We were selling local ads to pay the printing bill. And we all had second jobs, you know. But yeah, after like five, six, seven years, we started making a little money. And we decided to put color on the front page because most newspapers at that time were color. And in order to keep up with the parody, we wanted it to, to look like a real newspaper. And how much time were you, when you say five, six years, you're still putting out weekly ads? Every week. The, the newspaper came out every week. And how so, much time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a, just a punishing, backbreaking schedule where... You know, as the I was the guy, the buck stopped with me. So I was always up till three, four in the morning, every night, laying out the paper and putting it together, putting it to bed, delivering it to the the printer, and it was an obsession. But I loved every second of it. Like it was really an amazing, fun thing to try to be as funny as you could every week. It's like really great practice, you know. And then after a few years, you get pretty good at it, and then you develop a team. And they get pretty good at it. And then by the time 1996 rolls around and we go online, we're pretty good. You know, we, we kind of know what we're doing. The voice of the onion is pretty well honed. And so when we debuted to the world, essentially, uh, it, it, it was kind of the onion that you know today, which is really funny, satirical headlines that make fun of real news and make fun of journalism and have a lot to say about um, politics and society and uh, media and everything else. But it took you guys a long time to figure out your niche. Totally. So yeah. what kept you consistent and going? Because nowadays, especially with the internet, there's so many people who are like, if I'm not making money now, I'm not doing it. 
Yeah, and I think if we had been in New York, we probably would have made money sooner. The fact that we were in Madison, Wisconsin, and nobody knew what we were doing, and the fact that we were selling local advertising and kind of breaking even every week meant that it was a going concern. Like we were happy, we were having fun, and we were paying the bills, so we were fine. And nobody would have quit. Like it was totally a labor of love for everybody involved. The writers got paid $5 a week, you know, to come to a meeting and pitch ideas. And over time, we hired more people like to be more full time. I fired, I hired my first full time writer. I think it was around 92. Um, and for a while, it's just me and him, you know. And yeah, you do it because it's totally a labor of love. It's just something you really love. Now, as far as your earlier question, like, what did we have in mind for what, what was my vision of it? I mean, I'd hoped that the onion would be mentioned someday in the same breath as the Harvard Lampoon. That was my dream. I, I wanted it to be considered one of the better college humor publications. So it's the most I ever hoped for. Until we went online and we started getting national attention, um, then I really was just focused on the work. Like I was just focused on putting it out and trying to make it as funny as possible. And I kind of lost sight of like what the vision was like ultimately. Then I start, maybe I started thinking more like, oh, we could almost be like a national humor publication like the National Lampoon was or Spy. But something really funny happened. There was this insert for the daily college newspaper in town, the Daily Cardinal. It's this colored national insert that all the college newspapers got. So it was national stories that they would uh, just run inside their local edition. And it was interviews with the editors of the top six college humor publications. And I saw that and I was like, oh, wow, the Harvard Lampoon was there. Uh, you know, there's one at Brown University and some other Dartmouth, stuff like that. And The Onion wasn't there. And my heart sank because I was like, why? We deserve to be there. What the hell? And I, I read these little interviews. It was like 10 questions to these editors. The last question on each one of them was, where do you want to work when you grow up? Each one of them said the onion. No like, way. So somehow we like leapfrogged the college humor scene and we were seen as like this national magazine somehow. I don't know how it happened except that <laughs> um, we didn't cover local events. You know, we covered national stuff. We quickly learned that when you only do local stuff, which is what a lot of college humor does. It'll make fun of their local chancellor or whatever. Nobody cares about that. <laughs> Nobody, yeah. Nobody's reading that. Um, and the fact that we, we did everything we could to get the word out. We did a radio show. We did uh, a TV pilot. Like we sent the paper for free to like anybody in Hollywood that we could think of, you know, to all the major talent agencies. We just like blanketed the world with our, stuff because we thought it was good and we thought well if people see it they'll recognize that it's good and somehow these these college humor publications found it and found out about it that's that's awesome because you sit there and you want to be part of this and you're like i'm already bigger who knew so how did you guys know what i find interesting is that the internet was getting going but how did you guys know to hop on that well, we didn't. Our tech team, like our design team, our computer team, it was like yeah. three guys. And one of them was really tech savvy. And 
he basically came to me one day and said, hey, there's this thing called the internet and there are these things called websites and we should have one. And I was like, okay. And so I went to my business partner after this guy told me what we would need. We had to get a local host and it was going to cost us $400 to get the domain, theonion.com and put our website up. And my business partner was like, we're not going to spend $400. What the hell is this? Like it was just total waste to him. He couldn't understand the value. <laughs> Eventually uh, we kind of ganged up on him and convinced him to spend the $400. And all we did was took everything we were doing in print and just put it on a website. There was no interaction. There was no new material. There was no like putting out a different story every day. Just like once a week, we just dump it all. And that's all it was. But in those days, it was like one of four websites that you could go to. Um, you know, I think Fox News had a website. Um, Google, uh, I don't even think was around. Like it was just such an early time. Um, and webs, a lot of websites didn't really look that good. Like nobody had really programmed HTML to design anything. It all was like the... I don't know what you call that, but like that plain HTML text, you know, with all those text yeah. and links and stuff. Um, and our guy was really sharp and he knew HTML and he like designed it all and put it all up. Uh, Jack Schwergold was his name. And uh, he ended up doing some writing and illustration for the onion and the onions first book as well. But yeah, thanks to him, we, we went online and it just immediately exploded our readership by a factor of like a billion. Oh, wow. And that's when people started to know what was going on and you would hear yeah. people talking about it. Mm -hmm. That must've been surreal the first couple of times. Totally. Yeah. We got reviewed in the New Yorker, like this glowing review. And you know, when you work in obscurity for eight years and then suddenly you're getting this glowing review in the New Yorker, it feels damn good. It feels yeah. Damn. It's earned. It's earned. And it feels right. like, and that's what you need in that validation of like, all the work kind of paid off and like there's actually people interested in this. Yeah. Uh, and again, we would have kept doing it anyway because we were loving it, but we were hungry for that kind of acknowledgement because and, we felt like we were doing pretty good work. And that validation. And did you know, because you said no one similar was in that space. Not really, no. Doing what you were doing. So Spy Magazine was even kind of on the, on the out at that point. And they were amazing. They were the 80s, like they were the funniest humor publication around. And to my money, still one of the finer humor publications this country has ever produced. But by the mid 90s, they were mostly gone. And um, National Lampoon was gone. Mad Magazine was for kids. So we just like jumped in this space. And did you guys think you were ahead of the time? Or was it just you thought it was funny, so you think people would find it interesting? Exactly. We're just trying to make ourselves laugh. We thought it was funny. Um, and that was it. Yeah, we weren't like targeting a particular demographic or, you know, any of that nonsense. It was none of that. And, and that's what I really enjoy about that story because so many people want to come in. What's your marketing plan? What's this plan? What's it? We had no plan. We just did. Yeah. And the, the best stuff has no plan. The best stuff has no marketing plan. The best stuff is somebody who has a really deep passion and a vision and they just pursue it blindly going right off a cliff with it. Like that's, <laughs> those are the people that I appreciate and like, because there's a, there's a certain feeling in work like that. It's alive. Like other work isn't. 
um, it really feels vital. Like it's somebody just sharing a piece of their soul. You know, that's totally what the onion was. Yeah, it's authentic. And it's none of this, you feel desperate, like they're trying to get you to do something. And it's just authentic being yourself. And we never went after the money. Like we never asked readers for money. We never tried to sell anything. It was just giving stuff out for free. So it was like building this goodwill and building this fan base. That's why the Onion's fan base today is like millions of people who just love the Onion. Because for most of the Onion's history, we literally never asked them for anything. We just kept giving them free stuff. (laughs) And the first time we ever had anything for sale was when we did our first book. And, you know, so many people bought that book. It went shot to number one on Amazon, like the week it came out. And what was the book? It was called Our Dumb Century. And it was a look back at the 20th century because it came out in 1999. Okay. I look back at the whole century through fake front pages of The Onion as if The Onion had been around for 100 years. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, Great book. We won the Thurber Prize for American Humor for that book. Like it was a big deal. And you guys just did this on the side because you're like, why don't we try this? Maybe we can make some money. Or it was just, I want to write a book. Yeah, it wasn't about the money. It was about, because we lost money on the book. (laughs) Truth be told, we sold it to uh, Hyperion, which is Disney's publishing arm. And we spent like two years, we were like a year late delivering the book to them. And when we finally finished it, and and it took us literally two solid years of work, in addition to doing the, the weekly newspaper and website, we delivered them the manuscript and the Disney lawyers went through and crossed out every story that had to do with sex, violence, or drugs. And that was like 80% of the history of the 20th century right there. So we ducked out of that publishing contract, told our agent, screw them, see who else you can find. And he got a bidding war among other publishers and we got like a half million dollar advance to publish it somewhere else. And we never looked back at Disney. And, but again, we spent that half million dollars on the writing and the graphics and just the time it took for us to make that book. So, uh, yeah, super proud of that book. And um, it remains like one of my the favorite things that I've worked on. Yeah, and it's so cool because you get to keep that forever. And it's, right. you know what you've done with it. And yeah. how the, as you continue going on, because I know there's more layers to that. Obviously, it's an onion. There's multiple layers. <laughs> um, but how did you guys continue to keep advancing and keep expanding in different ways? Well, that was kind of on me. Like that was that was my role as the chief creative and like the editor in chief was how can we reach more people? How can we build the audience? So we started doing a radio show almost immediately, and that was just having a really square sounding news radio guy read onion stories on the news. And we syndicated that to news, to radio stations all over the country. And it was just like an ad for the onion. But again, it was like a free service that we would just provide just at the end. They would say, you know, for more um, visit the onion.com. And that was it. So people would find the, the thing and Howard Stern played that for a long time. And, Uh, That was a huge audience for us to tap into. And like I said, we did a TV pilot. Um, We expanded the print edition to other cities. Like we tried to make it as national as possible, but national magazine distribution is totally mob controlled. And we just didn't know how to get into that. So 
we would just start these local branches where we'd set up a local ad staff to sell local ads and then we would send them the the insides the jokes and they would wrap it around their local ads and we were in like five or six cities by the mid 90s like um boulder denver um minneapolis chicago stuff like that and then doing the book was another big uh way to it was again just like a way to reach more people like some people are going to pick up the onion for free on the street some people are going to see it online some people are only going to take it seriously if there's a book because you know when you have a book you get reviewed and you get legitimized yeah you're totally legitimate when you have a book especially when you get a a number one bestseller like we had and then like after the year 2000 we started doing web video which was a whole new branch and we had already done a tv pilot we did a comedy cd um and then we started doing these like web video clips and we had agents hounding us about doing a tv show which we said no to so many times because we wanted to figure out how to do the web videos really well and make them really funny before we jumped into any kind of TV project. <laughs> and then I ended up taking a hiatus and they, ju they jumped into a TV project too early and it didn't work. But so The Onion has never had that much luck in TV. Um, but again, it was just another thing we were trying to do. And then they did The Onion movie also, which was a big bomb. But again, it was another way to try to reach uh, a new audience. Definitely, definitely. And while you're doing this, it, it's very interesting because the onion is a different type of humor. You have to, I mean, just writing humor is different because it's harder to articulate yourself. You don't have all of the human emotions. So how are you able to make it funny? Like, obviously, like I think of myself, I think of myself as kind of funny, but when I text, no one understands what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, writing humor is one of the hardest things there is, so one of the hardest kinds of writing. Because when you're in person, you have timing, you have, like you said, your sort of personality, and you can like sell the material and talk funny and move funny. You have none of those tools when you're writing comedy. And so, you know, people have done it successfully for a long time. And we obviously studied those people and learned a lot from doing it ourselves. And I, I actually wrote it all down, like how to do it in a book around 2014. Wrote a book called How to Write Funny, which was just a serious nonfiction book that lays out the recipe for how you write successful humor in a way that I had not seen anyone else do. Like really spell it out step-by-step step how it's done. And that book actually became, I actually see it right here, oddly enough. Uh, the book, it's backwards though. The book, uh, became a perennial uh, seller on Amazon. Like uh, it sells hundreds of copies a month and it kind of turned into this whole side business for me where I'm teaching comedy to people. I wrote two sequels, how to write funnier and how to write funniest. And um, now I do online courses where I teach humor to people. It's totally a skill that you can learn. It's not anything magical that you have to be born with in my experience. Yeah. And I think that's where, the world, a lot of the world is today where if you have a skill, you can teach it and you totally. can go down that coaching route and kind of expose all of that. Yeah, which I enjoy immensely. It's so much more rewarding than actually doing the comedy, which is a hard, hard work. That's like a young person's life. Uh, 
creating the comedy. <laughs> yeah, and when you're doing the comedy, was there any? This is a little bit down the line question. I, I want to get to it, but I want, I guess I'll bring it up now. Um, was there any stories? I, I was watching, I was doing some research on you and I saw that there were some clips where some of the onion got taken seriously Yeah, and it caused some, some problems. Yeah. Well, we, you know, because of the, the type of material that we would do at the onion, we often would get tr- in trouble like we get in trouble for making fun of famous people before the onion was that well known. Now, of course, if we, the onion makes fun of somebody, they send you a fan letter. Oh, I'm so excited that I ended up in the onion, you know, but back in the day they would sue you, you know, or they would try to sue you. The onion has never successfully been sued, but we've been hounded by people like the governor of Wisconsin tried to come after us for making fun of him. Uh, Steven Seagal came after us, Michael Bay threatened to sue us, the director, and Donald Trump was really upset with a story we did around 2012, 2013, um, where we intimated they had a small penis and (laughs) Michael Cohen, his lawyer hounded, hounded us, wrote us letter after letter after letter demanding that we retract that story. Um, so those are just idiots who like don't like being made fun of. But yeah, then there's other people who literally believe the onion is real and they take it seriously, which is just baffling to me. Like, you should know, like, when you start reading it, that it's fake. But people aren't that bright, uh, by and large. So if they see something in print, they just assume it's real and doesn't believe anything they read. You know, I think there's just a large segment of the population that is naturally just incredibly stupid and gullible and they'll just believe whatever you tell them well that that's the major didn't mean to cut you off there but that's the major issue with uh social media people read a facebook thing and all the fake news that was coming out before the election in 2016 and the onion was already on top of that but if you have something in paper people think it's more legitimate (laughs) (laughs) it's baffling it's just baffling like what a failure of our national education system that people can't they have no internal criteria by which to judge whether something is true they have zero Mm -hmm. so they'll believe astrology they'll believe psychics pet psychics uh they'll believe an obvious lie from a politician they'll believe anything you know and it's just sad it's so sad um but for for when working at the onion like for me and the other writers there, it was just a joy to write things that we thought were really funny and then have people believe it. People who should know better, like people, foreign leaders, um, people on the floor of the United States Congress, they would quote articles from The Onion like as if it was a real news source. I mean, just unbelievable. (laughs) Uh, It just makes you realize what a sea of stupidity that we actually do live in. Like you go through life, I think a lot of times assuming that well, people aren't that stupid. Like, you know, the world functions and it, it gets by somehow, but you never realize, no, it's actually, we're barely clinging to civilization because people are that stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's true. You see some of these articles that come out and now there's other um, publishers who do similar stuff and you just see the fake stories go up. Like I know, I'm blanking on his name, but this one guy does it on Twitter and he'll just, he'll get reposted a lot of the time. And it's ridiculous. Like it is ridiculous stories. 
So what is one example of something where everyone got fooled? Not everyone, but one person and they were important yeah. enough to. <clears throat> one, of, one of the funnier ones that happened was we wrote this big story about how the United States Congress was threatening to leave Washington, D.C. if the city didn't um, build them a new Capitol building with stadium seating and a retractable dome. They were going to leave and go to another city that would treat them better, like Omaha or something. And we, as part of this article, we had this elaborate Adobe Illustrator graphic showing the proposed new Capitol building that they wanted that showed all the hot dog stands and like lights around uh, and the retracting dome and everything. And so at that time, the largest circulation newspaper in the world, the Beijing Evening News, reran the entire story word for word. And they reran the photo as well, that illustrator graphic. And when they were informed later, like I guess later that day, <laughs> they were informed that the onion was satirical, that this isn't true. Um, they were just baffled. And so they ran a correction in the next issue of the Beijing Evening News that said something like, apparently, there are newspapers in America that print lies. <laughs> they just didn't get it. They just didn't understand it. That's so hilarious. Much fun. Yeah, so much fun. And that 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 makes it kind of, that makes it a cool time because then when people take it seriously, then you kind of realize your reach and realize what you can do with it and yeah. how you can manipulate people to think of them differently. Yeah, and the goal at the onion was never to trick people. The goal was just to do really funny satire. So anybody who ever believed it and thought it was real, the joke's on them. Like that's just them being stupid. And and we would sit back and enjoy that. But that was never the goal. Yeah. And so my next thing with the onion, who, because obviously when you guys are creating this, especially when it was smaller and I can imagine when it's bigger, there's a little bit more of a corporate structure, but when it's smaller, who decides, who is the person who goes, you know, this is a good idea. I don't like this idea. This is a bad idea. Cause you got to shoot out a ton of ideas and people are probably super adamant and then they get disappointed. Hey, Scott didn't pick my idea again. Like, right. you know what I mean? It's hard to be unbiased. Yeah. Well, you had it right. It was my, it was my responsibility to do that when I was the editor. And it's ultimately the editor's responsibility to pick which stories um, get run, which, which ideas get written as stories and which ideas might get written as like a smaller using brief and which ideas might be relegated to like headline only or whatever. So yeah, part of my whole process that I write about in my How to Write Funny books is how you deal with the politics of working in a group and um, creating the right quantity of jokes so that if you reject 95% of somebody's jokes, there's still going to be uh, a satisfied member of the team by getting you know, uh, their fingerprint on the work in some fashion. Yeah, because you want to make sure that everyone's involved and you don't want to deter anyone. Yeah, so, and the Onion stories are like, uh, historically, they're almost written by committee. Like you assign one writer to do a draft, but everybody jumps on it and punches it up and chimes in and writes new paragraphs, you know, um, to finesse it. And the editor does a lot of rewriting. So everybody's, everybody's thumbprint is on everything. 
Definitely. And when you were took your leave, what what was the reasoning for that? And what did you want to pursue yeah. other things? No, I did that a few times. Um, first time I did it was like the mid nineties. I just wanted to play pool for a while. And for like a year, I just played a lot of pool. So I was really tired. Like those first few years were just so draining. Um, and then I did it again in the late nineties. I made um, my first movie spaceman. That was like a, you know, six or eight month leave or something like that. And then I left again in 2000, um, 2001, somewhere in there. And uh, made a second movie, made Bad Meat, and then I came back. So what would happen is I would leave because I would think, okay, I've done all I can with The Onion. There's nothing more I can do or whatever. And then like, I would keep up with them and I would stay in touch with them and they would have, the new editor would leave or whatever and they would always invite me back like to, um, to be the editor again. And uh, I could never say no because it's like The Onion's my baby and like, they want me to help uh, on there. So I, I left though for the final time in 2014, I'm definitely not going back. This is a, by far the longest um, time away that I've had six years now. Yeah. And it just allowed you to do, it's kind of like when you leave the heart grows fonder and you can decide if you want to go back or not, but you also pursued other projects. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy doing my own thing. And I, I, I won't go back because now it's, you're right. It's very corporate now. Yeah. And um, I don't even like going in the office. I have a key, but I don't go in because it's just very unpleasant. It feels very oppressive. It's like a marketing company now. It doesn't even feel like it has that same um, luster that you feeling. built. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have any of that. And that's what happens with a lot of these companies as they get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's hard for it to stay. Sure. That unique culture that you kept. Absolutely. And then like the owners sold it to, um, like I sold it to this billionaire investor um, in 2005, I want to say something like that, 2008. And um, then they ended up selling it to Univision. And I think Univision sold it to somebody else in some investment group. So it's like all these bean counters who ultimately make the decision. Like, that's just creepy. Like, I don't want to have any part of that. <laughs> yeah. Know? And now they're all in there because they invested in it. And now they're like, we got to get a return. Exactly. So how are we going to make as much money as possible? Meanwhile, exactly. when it all started with the humor, and that's a great point that you brought up there because it's so important because the passion is what allows you to be on your own and really have it grow and have it fly. Yeah, I feel like they're still surviving on the fumes of that fuel that we put in it in those early years when it was all free and it built all this goodwill and it did all these amazing, um, funny pranks on the world. You know, it's been a long time since The Onion did something like that. But um, it takes the audience a long time to realize um, when something has like lost its soul. And so I look at The Onion, I still see a remnant of the soul there, but it's, it's they're doing their best to beat it out. <laughs> their best to beat it out of it. And that's what you were mentioning about the passion and staying with that and finding people placing their souls into it. Like you were saying, yeah. they're not doing that anymore. No, I feel like it's a job now. Like comedy writers uh, apply to it and it's a, it's a stepping stone. It's, it's a comedy writing stepping stone job for them. That's never what it was like before. 
Yeah. So also in our, your description, we talked about a voice actor. Right. What? I, I know kind of what a voice actor is, but what what is a voice actor? How did you get into that space? Because originally you were just the creative guy and then the editor. and Yeah. Well, you know, I was always interested in doing comedy my whole life. I was writing funny cartoons and funny stories as early as I could you know, draw or move a pen. And one other thing that I was always doing was I was always making like little uh, comedy skits on a tape recorder, just constantly. And as I grew up and I got into high school, my friends and I would do these elaborate radio comedy productions. We bought sound effect records and we had a multi-track recorder and we just like, and then one friend and I did a whole uh, series uh, of shows for our college radio station, like these elaborately produced radio comedy shows. And so I'd been doing like this kind of stuff my whole life. And when I moved away from home and I went to Madison, Wisconsin, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, at least the latter half of my childhood. And Madison was kind of where you went when you left a small town in Wisconsin. And I went to the local recording studio and asked them if they needed any voices because they would produce like local radio commercials and stuff. And I got a job doing a commercial for the Wisconsin Dells. Like I played a teenager and I made these elaborate uh, voice demo tapes. And so I started doing voice work for them. And then occasionally they would get like a national spot or whatever. And I would do that. And then I got into cartooning and I started doing that. And then I got into the onion and started doing that, but I never stopped doing the voice work. Like that was the thing I got into first. And it was like a great little side income for me. And then I got a job at a radio station also. Uh, so that was kind of in the same field or whatever. And then when I went to New York, I, I got more uh, like national type work or whatever. And I still do it on rare occasion, but the, the whole industry has really changed. Um, it was, I think it was an easier thing to get into in those days because a lot of local recording studios knew who all the talent was. And, and now I think it's all just in New York or LA, Chicago. Um, and you can't do it without an agent. And you're, there's too much competition with these websites like voices.com where people are going to post their job and 50 people are going to audition and the odds of getting it are just so slim. In the old days, you'd never audition. They would know what you could do and they would just call you in to do it. So I did a lot of voices. I did impressions. I would always do the president and I did a lot of voices for that MTV show, Celebrity Deathmatch. And um, I... I uh, um, did a few uh, video games, stuff like that. Like it was, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, for whatever reason, I just haven't been doing it a lot lately. Yeah. If you, if you don't mind, who's your, who's your best voice? Um, I'm just kind of curious. I don't want to see if it. Yeah. So my, um, every, everybody who does voices has like one or two voices that they do that no one else does. And um, for me, like it, so I, I did, um, I started doing presidents when Ronald Reagan was president and I called a local radio station when I was a teenager and 
pretended to be Ronald Reagan and they put me on the air to take questions from callers. Um, so that, that was amazing. And so what I would always do every time there was a new president, I would listen to recordings of them and study the voice and, and get it down pat. And I did a ton of uh, George W. Bush. I did a ton of Clinton. And, and then uh, I didn't do a lot of George W. Bush in the first four years. I was really busy at The Onion. But then when he got reelected, I decided to start doing a podcast that was by George W. Bush. It was like his weekly radio address. And um, we would just make fun of whatever he stupid thing he did that week. And it became so popular on iTunes, like top 10 podcast on iTunes for the longest time. And we got a book deal out of it. It was more popular than, than the president's actual weekly radio address, which is the thing that the president used to do. So, um, yeah, my Bush voice is probably like my best voice. So um, I'll, I'll have to do a little of him for you now, won't I? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'll just do like a sample uh, weekly radio address. This is, this is how those would go. Good morning. This is your president, George W. Bush. And today is September the 11th. Now, September the 11th was an important date for all Americans. And for me in particular, I think, you know, that's anyway, that's it. That's incredible. I, I love that. That was hilarious. Oh, man, that's entertaining. We did one weekly radio address that was on 9-11, on one of the 9-11 anniversaries, where it was yeah. just two minutes of him saying 9-11 over and over and over. <laughs> so he would say, 9-11. September the 11th, 2001. 9-11. Just over and over and over. It was fun. That's hilarious. And I love how it can constantly be repurposed. And you were doing the podcast that had to be before it was the podcast for big, right? Yeah, they weren't, they weren't that big. Yeah. So it was 2004. Very, yeah. Yeah. That, that's before it was that that's very, very cool. And then how I can't believe that's, that's awesome that you made a career out of comedy because that's always been something that a lot of people are like, I love it. I love to do it. Like I've done a couple of standups, which I find entertaining, but it's, when are we going to get serious? And I think that fact, you can go. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I just think that fact that you, people get serious, but then you learn to like enjoy it and have fun with it and make people laugh and really just find the light in the world. It's a good thing. And yeah, like I, I always loved doing comedy my whole life. And if I hadn't ever figured out a way to make a living at it, I would still be doing it, you know, just for fun. So the fact that I ended up figuring out a way to get paid for it is just a bonus. I still would, I still would be doing it. Um, it's funny you mentioned that because like, yeah, I know there's a lot of people who really love doing comedy just like me, but they just haven't figured out how to make a living at it. So one of the courses that I do online is called comedy business school that like teaches you how to make it in the comedy business because I don't think people quite understand that business or how it works. Um, and there's a certain type of person who succeeds in it, a certain mindset attitude um, that's really critical. And also just like the nuts and bolts of like how it works in the various um, media, like whether it's comic strips or voice work or, you know, performing, writing, whatever it is. Um, people seem to think now that the only way to make it is to do stand up. 
And uh, that's just one of many. And I didn't ever really start doing that until a few years ago um, when I kind of took a crash course at it. But I had been giving talks, like lectures at colleges, which were pretty funny. Um, so it was, it was pretty easy for me to like to ease into stand up. Yeah. And what was, was there a reason for the hesitance or you just liked? I loved being behind the scenes. I loved being, preparing things, making them perfect and then presenting them. Yeah. Um, I started an animation company in the mid two thousands too, and made some short animated cartoons, did a bunch of work for commercials, industrial clients and stuff like that. Same thing. It's like so much fun to perfect something and put it out. Going on stage is something that always bothered me because it was so imperfect. Like, you, uh, okay, you had to be perfect the first time, and you didn't get a second chance. That just unnerved me for the longest time. That makes a ton of sense because there's so many. Well, I mean, it makes sense because you said when the onion was starting, you were still up till three, four in the morning because you wanted to perfect it. Yeah, and there's a lot of people nowadays, especially with social media or any platform people are very stuck in it's not perfect i don't want to put it out there yeah no that's a big problem that stops a lot of people so what allowed you to overcome that besides staying up super late was there any tips or tricks that you yeah i mean in the beginning it really was just sheer nose to the grindstone hard work being a perfectionist and like trying to perfect, literally trying to perfect things. But the important thing that I learned in those days, so I had my comic strip then too. I had a daily comic strip that I did for 10 years around the same time the onion was growing. And if I didn't have a daily deadline for my comic strip, I never would have turned it in because I would have been trying really hard to make it perfect. Same with the onion. If we didn't have a weekly deadline to turn it in, we would still be working on issue one today, trying to make it perfect. So having deadlines, having external deadlines that you can't negotiate with was absolutely the most valuable thing for me because it forces you to get it as good as you can and get it out there and forget about it. The real curse happened when we went online and we learned that you could edit the stories after you put them online. That was a curse because now we're going in there, we're tweaking stuff. And I had to take the password away from the writers after a while because people were spending too much time like reworking stories that were already out. But so deadlines are huge. And also just focusing on the volume of work, focusing on putting out work continuously, like doing something every week or every day and trying to make the aggregate product perfect as opposed to any one individual thing. Because you're right, that's the problem. Somebody will be working on a novel for 10 years like stop put that out like finish it and put it out like i just wrote a novel it took me two months and it's out like it's it's i sent it to my agent it's done and i'm doing it again now like that's the only way to do it you have to have a deadline you have to get it out and you have to be comfortable with the knowledge that it might not be perfect and that's the hardest thing for a perfectionist it's something i've had to work on like just being comfortable, not being perfect, knowing that things are going to be flawed, there are going to be mistakes. And I've gotten to the point now where I can put something out that'll have a blatant error, you know, a huge technical problem, something, and I won't care. I'll like put it out. Who cares? Whatever. And that feels so healthy to me. Uh, you know, it's not the best professionally, but it's like so good for me personally 
to be I okay with that. Completely agree with that. And I liked your point of you build the aggregate. Yeah. And it's exactly what I'm doing with the podcast. Like maybe the first couple, they weren't dropped all at the same time. Absolutely. And then we go, okay, once every two weeks. Now we're going once a week. Then we do once every two, right. two weeks. It, it is what it is, but it's, it's what works for you and what makes you feel comfortable. And, and you got to pay those dues. You got to learn. You know, you got to make those flubs in the beginning because that's how you're going to learn and get better, you know. Yeah. And did you have anyone that was in comedy that was a, somewhat of a mentor? I heard you reference it a little bit earlier, but was there anyone that you guys would go to often? Because you guys were in a very unique space. Yeah, we didn't really have anybody like that at The Onion. If anything, I was that person because I was already successful like doing voices and doing comics. And I'd spent my whole life doing comedy, like just amateur comedy, making films and everything else. And I was the oldest one. I was like two or three years older than everybody else. So, um, but did I have someone? Yes. So I had a, a couple of friends, one in particular. Well, I'll, I'll say two. Uh, one was a high school friend. He was like four years older than me. And he was sort of like my comedy buddy in high school. So after he graduated, went to college, I was still in high school, but we would get together and we would, we would write comedy radio plays and scripts and stuff like that and make movies together. And he was absolutely my comedy mentor, really prolific, hardworking guy. His name is Keith Webster. He was amazing. And then a second one was a friend of mine that I've had ever since I was in the second grade. His name is Marcellus Hall. And so he was a great artist, great cartoonist. And we would read Mad Magazine and we would try to copy the, the drawing in Mad Magazine. And we made little cassette tape skits as well way back in the day. We're talking like the early 1970s when I was a little kid. And um, so he was one year older than me, but very much like in those days, like when you're that young, that's really old. That's an older person. And so... Uh, we remained pen pals after I moved away from Minneapolis, where I knew him, where we went to school together. And we stayed in touch. And we even got together on occasion to produce comedy. We did a couple of like comedy radio plays together and stuff. And then he went to the Rhode Island Institute for Design and came out uh, an artist and a musician. He was a rock star for a while. He's in a band called Railroad Jerk, which... Uh, had a couple of albums, they went on tour, and he did illustration, and he's, to this day, a very accomplished illustrator. He, he's been on the cover of The New Yorker a few times, and so he, and he actually did a comic strip that we ran in The Onion in the 90s as well. So those two guys were kind of like my comedy mentors, if I had, if I had to pick like a mentor, um, but they were just like a private mentor for me mostly. Yeah. And I think that's, it's so important because I'm glad you said that. And even if they were just friends to spit ideas against, because you sometimes have to step away from your organization that you have because everyone can get too involved. Yeah. So everybody needs somebody. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and everyone needs that space to go, Hey, is this the right thing? Is this the wrong thing? I need an unbiased. Yeah, and those two guys would always be totally honest with me. Like they would never blow smoke at me, you know, and, and like puff me up. Like that was the opposite of what they would do. Yeah. They were a good friend, probably behind your back. They puffed you up, but in front of you, they're like, Scott, we need this. We need this. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and very valuable. Did um did anything in the onion did the onion as it grew and started to get bigger and bigger, did it ever obviously you were in that newspaper with Time magazine, but did it ever well like basically how did you get a lot of recognition from it or was it always the paper? Yeah, well that was a conscious choice that I made to be behind the scenes and to not like put my face out there too much. I wanted the onion to be the star because I saw that that was the reason why the national lampoon failed. And it was the reason why spy magazine failed was because they started to, they made celebrities out of the, the creative heads of it. And so when those people left readers were like, well, it's not funny anymore because Doug Kenny left or whatever. Um, Kurt Anderson left Spy Magazine, so it's not funny anymore. That's what I thought, like, because I knew when some investor bought Spy Magazine and those the two geniuses who started it left, I was like, well, I'm not interested anymore. I'm not going to read it. I wanted The Onion to be to have all that stuff be secret, so that readers would never know. And that's effectively how it works. Like, I I can notice a subtle change in the quality year to year, editor to editor. But for most people, like they're not really looking at it that closely. To them, it just seems like the onion. It's similar to the way The Simpsons has done it, where they cycle through writers, but you don't really know any of the internal politics. So um, the brand of the onion survives and becomes the celebrity. And I knew that was really the only way it was going to work. And what was one of the ways that you, or a couple of the ways that you were able to do that? Well, one reason was whenever people would want to do an interview with like the minds behind the onion or whatever, sometimes I would do it. Sometimes I would put our head writer up for it. Sometimes we do a group thing so they could never like pinpoint one person who was like the lone genius behind it. That was really important to me to make sure that um, like that my name didn't become a household name. I wanted the onion to be the household name. That's incredible. And it, I think it's awesome that you, um, because what that does is it develops a community aspect yeah. inside of the onion, which people that you worked with probably loved. Well, no, actually they hated it because they wanted credit. They wanted their names on stories. And I'm talking way back in the early years yeah. after, after it became part of the culture, they all understood that the reason for that was to elevate the brand, the onion and not them individually. Because ultimately, like, they got all the opportunity that they could have dreamed from The Onion. Because once you've written for The Onion, like, you can get an agent and you can get hired on any comedy show you want. Um, so they got what they needed from it. But, yeah, it was, it was an issue at first where people were concerned um, because that's just not how comedy publications normally worked. Normally, you'd put the writer's name on every feature. Uh, but that just didn't work for the onion. We wanted it to seem like this official news voice that w- just was handed down from the truth gods and was not written by any one individual person. You know, that's really awesome because, but it, but I do see your point because it is pretty difficult for a, a young writer who comes in maybe twenty one, twenty two, and they're like, I got to build a book of work, and yeah. they're not able. I mean, maybe in private they're able to show that, but in the normal sense they have to kind of hold back because they're not, they're part of the onion, part of the onion community, but they're not a distinguished member of themselves. Yep. Um, But yeah, like I say, it it worked out great for them. They're all all doing fine. 
Yeah, I, it sounds like everyone did well. And I, I really uh, test you for that. Now, um, as we're winding down, what is your biggest accomplishment? Because you have done so many different things. I'm just kidding. Yeah, what, what's the biggest accomplishment that you think you have? Like you're talking comedy, right? Um, yeah. So um, I've got a few. Like Our Dumb Century, The Onion's first book is definitely one of them. Um, I did a, um, a Halloween special called They Came for the Candy. It was a parody of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadcast um, that I'm actually going to release um, on iTunes and Amazon finally um, for this Halloween. But I'm super proud of that. Like that was probably the pinnacle of my like radio drama work. Um, I've done a couple of films that like are my best work. Um, one short film is called The Astounding World of the Future that I'm really proud of. Another one is called The Kill. It's about a deer hunter. Um, super proud of that. And wow, I'm sure I'm forgetting something because I've done so much, but um, I, I did a book a couple of years ago that I'm really proud of. Um, it was called Trump's America. Buy this book and Mexico will pay for it. And it was written in 2015. And it was a book about what America would be like if Donald Trump was president. And it's like this full color, graphic heavy, really funny uh, kind of citizen's guide to Donald Trump's America. And I'm super proud of that book because so much of that book has come true. <laughs> um, and that's always great when you can write stuff that, that comes true. Um, I'm really proud of my comic strip, Jim's Journal. Um, it was a big success. and and published a lot of books. There was a big uh, treasury that we published, like it's like this thick, it's like all the cartoons ever published. Um, and I'm super proud of the work I'm doing now with the, the How to Write Funny um, books and website and courses. Um, so many people have gone through those courses and gotten like comedy careers out of it. And that's always been one of the most rewarding things for me working at The Onion was I would always hire people when they had zero comedy experience, you know, cause you want a blank slate. You want to be able to train somebody and you don't want them to have any baggage and to get somebody confident and good and good enough. They leave and they go and do well. Uh, just like nothing feels better. It's like, you know, it's like having kids and seeing your kids go off and become president of the United States. It's just very rewarding. Um, so super proud of all the people who've worked at the onion and gone off and, built amazing careers like Ben Carlin. He was um, the executive producer showrunner of the daily show under Jon Stewart. And he co-developed or co-created the Colbert show with Stephen Colbert. Um, Robert Siegel, who wrote uh, the movie, the wrestler and the founder that Michael Keaton movie. Um, he's an amazing writer and his first you know, writing job was the onion and uh, Dan Guterman, who writes on Rick and Morty, he's, he's an amazing, uh, just comedy mastermind. There's so many people like that. Um, Carol Kolb, great writer on, um, she was, she's on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, that's a lot of stuff. But, you that's know, I'm an old man, so I, I get a lot of stuff. It's to definitely a lengthy on. amount of stuff. And it's cool how you were able to, because I'm starting to realize now that 
as you develop the onion and it was its own unanimous brand that as people leave it, it, it becomes like a college education. So that person was part of the onion, he totally. did the onion. And that's so powerful. And so now it gets me thinking, what, what were some of the tips that you did uh, that allowed the brand to become so powerful? Um, I mean, the biggest one is, is probably, well, there's a lot. And I wrote a whole book about this, um, called outrageous marketing. Um, the subtitle is the story of the onion and how to build a powerful brand with no marketing budget. It's what it's called. So it's like part the story of the onion and part like marketing handbook. But what I did was I broke down what we did and I researched other successful companies that did the same things to show that these are principles that work across any industry. So Walgreens did this stuff, Harley Davidson, Kentucky Fried Chicken, Disney, uh, and there's a few principles. One of the main principles is having someone at the head of it who has a vision for it and is obsessed with that vision. Like, I think that's really critical. You have to be obsessed with doing something and you have to be obsessed with making it great. All the best uh, brands are built that way. Like Walt Disney, like literally um, had a nervous breakdown because he worked so much and he never went home. He was just always at the studio working, you know, and uh, same with uh, Harley Davidson. Those guys just lived in their motorcycle shop and all he wanted to do was make the best motor motorized bicycle they possibly could. That was their only goal. And with a lot of these people, it's never about the money. Like Walt Disney burned money. He never made money until like the fifties when Disneyland started making money. They were just like constantly borrowing money from banks. And um, his whole thing was just want to make quality product, just want to make quality product and just keep pumping out quality product. And he did it long enough that the, the audience realized, oh, Disney equals quality. And so once you achieve that kind of brand loyalty, then the money just flows in. Like there's just no stopping you. Like you've gotten to the top of the mountain, then it's just a ride. So it's a ski ride down the other side. So uh, being obsessed uh, with continuing to improve the quality of what you're doing um, is probably the number one thing. Yeah. For sure. And that constant improvement allows you to really just, first of all, for you, you got to see the progress. So that's what keeps you motivated. And then obviously the readers are like, wow, it is getting better. Or the listeners go, it's getting better. I would hope with the podcast. Um, Absolutely. Um, so what, what's one recommendation you would say to someone who's in their mid twenties or just graduated college and they get into this nine to five job and it's, it's not for them. What would you, what would you say is the best way to essentially what I'm saying is how would you pursue your passion? Yeah, that's rough. Um, I've had a nine to five job a couple of times, like just for a very short period and it's miserable. Like I hate it. I don't know how anybody does it. My advice to that person would be to, just shift your thinking about what you really need in life. Like, what do you get from that nine to five job? Like people in America think they need to make a lot of money and they think they need to work a nine to five job 
to support their expensive, lavish lifestyle. But you don't need that stuff. When I was building The Onion, uh, my real job, my side job, was working at a radio station. I was making minimum wage, and I lived in absolute squalor. And you hear that story a lot from people who are obsessively passionate about building something. They don't care about the money. They, they, they live hand to mouth. Like I was even homeless for a time. Like I um, couldn't pay my, I didn't have enough money to pay my rent. So I just bummed on friends' couches for months. And I slept at the studio where we recorded the Onion Radio News. And it literally did not matter to me. All that mattered to me was I was spending most of my time in the Onion office anyway. And I was just obsessed with making it great. Um, and I think if somebody's really passionate about something, they have to ask themselves, well, how passionate are you? Are you willing to give up your comfortable middle-class home, you know, your, your comfortable um, salary? Because you can get a, uh, a low-paying job that doesn't sap your soul, that gives you more time to work on your passion. And if that makes you happy, like, why are you, why are you not doing that? <laughs> what, what reason? Like, why are you making yourself miserable just to be able to afford car payments and, you know, a widescreen TV? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And Scott, I think that was so important what you just said right there. And I would hope people listen to it because it's so easy to look at someone like you and be like, wow, he's so accomplished. He did this, this, and this, he's been all over, but what did that really take? And right there, you just expressed it all because everyone thinks, Oh, it just comes. It just comes. It doesn't just come. Nothing just come. No, you work for it. You work really hard for it. And you're only going to work that hard for it. If you are obsessed with it, if you love it and you have to do it. So yeah. You got to ask yourself if you want to do something like how badly do you want to do it? Yeah. What what would you be willing to sacrifice? Because you can achieve just about anything you want in this life if you're willing to pay the price. Yeah. And usually a lot of people are not willing to pay that price. And that price yeah. is, they say they might. A lot of people talk, not a lot of people walk. It's true. Very true. Scott, you are you are a wealth of knowledge, and I, I really appreciate you have, coming on the podcast, and it's definitely been very insightful. Oh, my have, pleasure. Kind of you to say, sir. Do you have anything that you want to leave the audience with? Uh, I want to wish you good luck on the podcast. Sounds like it's new and uh, that you're trying to build it up. So I wish you the best of luck in making it into uh, a great thing. You know, I, I listened to, you know, Lewis Howes, you know, his of podcast, course. School of Greatness. I remember listening to his podcast when he first started it and he was very clumsy and he was very green. And this is like back, you know, when podcasts were pretty new, like we were talking about. And I'm, I'm so impressed with that guy um, because he just stuck with it and he learned from all the guests that he brought on and he applied what he learned. And now he's like one of the leaders in the podcast world. Like it's so amazing to see the transformation where he started to where he uh, ended up. And I, I see you at the very beginning of a journey and I just, uh, I wish you the best with it. I appreciate that. I definitely do. Cause it is awesome meeting so many different guests because as the guests come in, okay, I learned about the comedy writing industry today. I just got a crash course from the best. And all I had to say was, would you like to come on my podcast? Would you like to see, would you like my audience to hear you? And for you, it's, 
okay, if one person joins my comedy club or if Jordan buys a book or whatever it is, or I just like teaching and telling my story, either or, it's a very good trade. And I'm, I'm, I appreciate your words. Yeah, no problem. Happy to, uh, happy to provide them. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in. Thank you for reaching the end of the podcast. For that, we'll give you a complimentary coaching session in the link below with Edwards Consulting. Hope to see you there and have a great day and keep clocking in.